This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as financial advice. All views expressed on this podcast are solely the opinions of the host and or any guests that we might have from time to time. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or to follow a particular investing strategy. Hello, you sexy sat stackers, and welcome to the latest episode of the Bitcoin Bulletin Podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. That makes it Leap Day Eve. So happy leap year to everyone out there, especially if you're listening tomorrow. Bitcoin seems to be on a mission to prove that this time is different, with the price soaring more than 20% in the last two days, putting it in just striking distance of actually setting a new all-time high before the halving. The clown show that is the Copa CSW trial is getting closer to wrapping up, Uh, but we have the trial to thank, or at least lament, depending on your point of view, for a mountain of new previously unknown uh, Satoshi emails to early Bitcoin developers. That and so much more, but first, let's dive into the vital statistics. At the time of this recording, we are sitting at a block height of 832,470, and Bitcoin is ringing in almost 10,000 USD higher than last DCA Wednesday, currently valued at 61,770 US dollars per Bitcoin, or a rate of 1,619 sats per dollar. That is That means we're going to get more than 300 sats fewer per dollar for our DCA purchase today. That is the way the cookie crumbles. You got to take the good to the bad as you watch the fiat value of your stack go up. Your ability to stack sats goes down. So that's why we've been stacking uh, as furiously as we can for the last two and a half years. Hopefully you've been doing so as well because we're getting... You know, you you never have enough, right? Like they keep asking Michael Saylor, when is it going to sell? What's going to be enough? And and it's never going to be enough. You're going to keep stacking as long as normies are willing to sell us Bitcoin. All right, where was I? So 1,619 sats per dollar was uh, what we're going to be able to exchange our fiat for here in just a minute. And the current block puts us, wow, I mean, this is coming up fast. 7,530 blocks away from the halving. That is getting closer and closer. It's still looking like that's going to happen on April 29th. So less than two months away now from the Bitcoin halving. What is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven DCA Wednesdays from now. So uh, after after seven DCA Wednesdays from now, we should be within a day or so of that halving. As you know, or if you don't know, if you're just joining us for the first time because the, the price action of Bitcoin has got you consuming more Bitcoin content. The reward that miners get for finding a block of Bitcoin is cut in half every 210,000 blocks. And that is a that is scheduled to occur again at block 840,000. And with the rate of, with the speed that blocks have been coming in, that's moved a little bit earlier. Uh, during the last six months to a year, we saw that move from basically April 22nd-ish uh, to April 20th, 420, Elon's favorite holiday and then uh now for the last month it's been looking like april 19th of course we won't know when the halving is going to occur until it occurs because even if we were just one block away from the halving you know i've seen blocks take more than an hour to come in in fact at the time of this recording it's been 27 minutes since the last block was found because that 10 minute average is just that just an average 
So sometimes they come in slower, sometimes they come in faster. And let's say it's 11.50 p.m., wherever you're at on the 19th, and that block takes more than 10 minutes, uh, that means that the, the having would actually happen on the April 20th. So we won't know until we know, which is kind of a bummer because it makes it difficult planning those having parties, which are sounding like they're going to be a lot of fun. I'm still really jealous of everybody going to the having party in El Salvador. That looks like a great time. I was just on their website, and they've got helicopter tours. In fact, you can you can arrive at the at the having party by helicopter uh, from the airport, or or they're doing helicopter tours of the volcanoes and you know some of the more famous sites in El Salvador by helicopter. And I mean that just sounds like a lot of fun. And I know plebs are going to be having fun all over the world. Uh, it it's just hard to plan something super coordinated in advance when we don't exactly know for sure when that having is going to occur. Other than we know it's going to happen exactly at block eight hundred and forty thousand. All right, Bitcoin's per- current. U.S. dollar value gives it a market cap of $1.21 trillion, almost $200 million more than last DCA Wednesday. That is only the third DCA Wednesday in a row that we've been back into that $1 trillion market cap territory. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't pay attention to market cap because really, you know, there aren't $1.21 trillion of the Bitcoin out there. There's you know, that you take the total amount of Bitcoin in existence, multiply it by the current price, and, and that would be your theoretical market cap. But normies pay attention to this number. Mark my words, as that valuation goes higher and higher, normies are going to get more excited, and, and the, the traditional financial media is going to start talking more and more about Bitcoin. We're going to get more FOMO and more excitement, and, and, uh, and it's only going to, it's only going to get, it's only going to get crazier, especially since, you know, we're, we're pretty darn close to Bitcoin's previous all-time high, and, and we haven't even we haven't even seen the halving yet. So if you think it's crazy now, wait till Bitcoin is blasted through that all-time high, and and who knows, you know, 10x, at least double, triple, 10x, or 20x. You know, we we don't know what Bitcoin's going to do, and it's certainly done crazier things. So buckle up, Buttercup, because it's going to be exciting. For those of you who still value your wealth in shiny yellow rocks, it will currently cost you 30.4 ounces of gold to purchase just one Bitcoin. We're now basically an ounce and a half, a little more than an ounce and a half away from it costing you two full pounds of gold to purchase just one Bitcoin. And that is, you know, five one ounce gold coins more than it cost you just last Wednesday. And they say you get the price, you know, you get Bitcoin at the price you deserve and uh, Peter Schiff is still out there hating on Bitcoin on Twitter, whether that's just a show, whether he's really that mentally ill. I personally think he's got daddy issues, but I'm not a psychiatrist. Who knows? Uh, my point being, if Peter Schiff decided he wanted to get off zero and get on a Bitcoin standard, it's currently going to cost him almost two pounds of gold to purchase just one Bitcoin, and it's only going to get worse. As you know, I've said repeatedly that before this year is over, we're going to be talking about Bitcoin. Uh, in, in terms of pounds of gold, not ounces. Really, when you're talking two pounds of gold, a lot of people still will refer to it in terms of ounces. Kind of like you refer to a newborn as by months or weeks, depending on how young they are. For example, you don't say my son is one and a half. You, they, you know, they say my son is 18 months or, you know, when they're two, oftentimes they still refer to it as 24 months or three, 36 months. And then when you get a little older, you start counting your birthday by years. Or when you get really old, like President Biden, maybe we can refer to it in decades. Point being, by the end of this year, Bitcoin is going to be so much more valuable in in, in terms of prices in gold that we're going to be referring to the price of 
uh, the price of Bitcoin in pounds of gold, not ounces. But for those of you who value your wealth in pizza, one Bitcoin will currently purchase you 3,454 large pepperoni pizzas from Papa John's. That is, uh, that is more than 500 pizzas more than you would have been able to purchase just last week. That is a pizza every day for almost nine and a half years, more than nine years. Uh, just for one Bitcoin. And, you know, it dawned on me a couple episodes ago that when I've been reading the statistic, it's kind of a misleading statistic because nine and a half years from now, we will be in the face melting bull run of, you know, the, of, of two halvings from now, uh, you know, we'll have the, the, we'll be, uh, we'll be in the face melting having of the 2032 having. So uh, it's possible that you'll never be able to buy that last pizza because as you spend your pizza, your Bitcoin on pizza, the price of Bitcoin goes up. And for example, in just one week, the value went up by 500 pizzas and you didn't eat 500 pizzas this week. So, uh, you know, your, your, the value of your Bitcoin is going to outpace your ability to eat it in pizza terms. And, and that's pretty cool because it's amazing to think that if you have just one Bitcoin, you could potentially feed yourself, maybe even your family, once a day, infinitely, infinite pizzas, but currently at least nine and a half years worth of pizza. Looking at Bitcoin on-chain activity, the mempool, well, Clark Moody's mempool is looking a little bit clearer. Last week, there were 86 blocks where the transactions pending in his mempool. Of course, his mempool is limited to that default 300 megabyte block si or mempool size. The week before, there were 91 blocks worth the transactions. The week before that, 104 blocks worth the transactions. But currently, Clark Moody's dashboard is showing only 73 blocks worth the transactions in his mempool. So uh, some transactions are clearing out despite a flurry of on-chain activity as far as purchasing goes. Uh, some of that presumably being on-chain, at least when you purchase and transfer to hardware wallet. Obviously, if you purchase Bitcoin from Coinbase, Cash App, or some exchange and don't take custody of it, all they're really doing is moving numbers around in the ledger, just like the banks do with your fiat. Um, so it doesn't reflect an on-chain activity, but hopefully most plebs are taking custody of their Bitcoin, at least, you know, if they, if they have a, enough Satoshis to where that, that wouldn't be a dust UTXO. We got into that a little bit last week, too, and I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's continue on with the vital statistics. Despite the fact that Clark Moody's mempool is showing fewer pending transactions, his fee estimator is way up. Last week, he was estimating that a priority on-chain transaction would need a fee of 25 sats per V-byte. Currently, the fee estimator is recommending 65 sats per V-byte. He is still saying that if you have a day to wait, a fee of 11 sats per V-byte will get mined. And they're recommending nine sats per V-byte if you have up to a week to wait. Mempool.space is telling an identical story as far as immediate high-priority transactions, recommending a 65 sat per V-byte fee. At current Bitcoin prices, that's $5.63, more than 5x what it cost you last week to make a priority on-chain transaction. And, you know, that, of course, is because, it, well, and part of it's because the price went up, but the price of Bitcoin didn't 5x. A lot of that has to do with uh, a lot of people making high priority transactions. Some of us consolidating our UTXOs. Again, we spoke about that quite a bit last week. I'll try to dive into that a little bit more in just a minute, but we'll continue on with those stats. Mempool.space is saying that if you have a medium or low priority transaction, that you need to include a fee of 50 or 39 sats per VByte, respectively, and that a no priority transaction uh, will be eventually mined at a fee of 10 sats per VByte. 
if you have a lot of small UTXOs, a hundred thousand sats or less, for example, and you're and you really need you're really thinking about it, you're really feeling the need to consolidate those. I have found anecdotally that you know a lot of these transactions happen. A lot of on-chain activity happens during the weekday, during the Monday through Friday, nine to five, or first thing in the morning when exchanges are batching, et cetera. Uh, and that during the weekend when bankers and Wall Street and normies are at home and not paying attention to things like Bitcoin or, or finance, that transactions wean a little bit and you can get a lower fee. For example, I consolidated a whole bunch of UTXOs into a much larger UTXO uh, over the weekend, and I set a fee of 10 sats per V-byte, which was lower than what they were recommending for a medium priority, significantly lower than what they were recommending for a high priority, and it, it, it mined in the very next block, uh, and that was still less than a dollar. So uh, had I set it around 8 sats per V-byte, I could have saved a few Satoshis, but the difference between 10 cents per V-byte and 8 cents per V-byte, when even, even at Bitcoin at its current prices, we're, we're, we're only talking pennies, and sometimes 5 or 10 cents, is it's worth it for that peace of mind. Again, maybe I'll get into that more here in a little bit uh, if I don't get distracted. If you want to learn more about consolidating UTXOs and why you might want to, go back and listen to last week's episode where we, we delved into that just a little bit more. All right, that metric that you know has been my favorite for most of the duration of this podcast, Bitcoin's 24-hour average transaction rate is up from last week. Uh, last week, we were looking at 4.4 transactions per second on average on-chain and currently Transactions are zooming in at 4.9 transactions per second. Again, I really despise transaction analysis, chart guys, TA guys, but sometimes I find certain things useful. And this isn't any official kind of metric. It's just that I look at the stats. We go over the vital statistics at the beginning of every, every episode. And one thing I noticed in the last two and a half years, almost without fail, that every time the average transaction rate was above 3.14, 3.15 transactions per second, the price of Bitcoin was going up. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it has anything to do with it. Could be total coincidence. But, you know, every Wednesday for two and a half years, that's been the case. So it's interesting to, to look at those statistics nonetheless. And as I've reiterated numerous times since the whole ordinals and inscriptions, BRC20 shenanigans, uh, you know, that kind of blew that out of the water a little bit because uh, transaction rates were a lot higher. So instead of four to five being the absolute max you would ever see, we were seeing as many as seven and a half to almost eight transactions per second. Uh, and so obviously, if there's an average of seven transactions per second, 3.15 transactions per second is minuscule, uh, you know, half. So uh, maybe that maybe that's a useless statistic. But so far, so good. You know, the average transaction volume is up over last week and Bitcoin's price is up. So I'm going to keep at least observing that statistic, even if it is just complete coincidence. Since last DCA Wednesday, actually not since last DCA Wednesday, I guess a couple of DCA Wednesdays ago was last uh, Bitcoin's last mining difficulty adjustment. That was a big upwards adjustment of 8.2%. I guess that was on February 15th. We are now just 138 blocks away from the next mining difficulty adjustment. If you don't know, the difficulty it takes to find the next Bitcoin block is adjusted every 2016 blocks which works out to about every two weeks. Again, it's like the halving. It, it, it can slide, you know, there's some leeway here because it's based on blocks and, and, and how fast blocks are coming in, not necessarily on a specific date or time. But it should take about a day to mine those 138 blocks. 
which would put the next mining difficulty adjustment on leap day tomorrow, sometime in about uh, 22, 23 hours from now on February 29th. And it's currently scheduled to be a difficulty decrease. We don't see a lot of those. We haven't seen a lot of decreases in difficulty uh, during the two and a half years that we've been doing this podcast. But this is going to be one of those, apparently, if nothing changes in the next day. And depending where you get your data, it's going to be a decrease of anywhere from 2.41% to 2.7%. Again, this doesn't really matter because the difference in block times to, to a normie that's or even a, even a pleb that, that's just making a few on-chain transactions, the difference between, say, 9 minutes and 50 seconds to 10 minutes or 10 minutes to 10 minutes and 12 seconds for that block to be mined, that transaction to be confirmed, is almost negligible. But if you're mining from home or if you're a large commercial miner, it means that your mining operation should get about 2.5% more profitable for about the next two weeks starting sometime tomorrow. So that's cool if you're if one of the ways you're DCAing is by DCAing by spending electricity and converting electricity directly to Satoshis. And a lot of I know a lot of you are doing that. And the reason we're looking at a two and a half ish percent decrease in the mining difficulty is because blocks are currently averaging 10 minutes and 16 seconds per block. Obviously, that is slower than 10 minutes. And since it's slower, the mining protocol will decrease the difficulty, hoping to speed that block time up a tiny bit. Of course, you know, that that's an average and they take an average of 2016 blocks for a reason, because last week when we were over a thousand blocks away from the halving or from the mining difficulty adjustment, it was looking like the average, it was looking like the adjustment was going to be more like a decrease of 5% because blocks were averaging 10 minutes and 32 seconds. So they've come in a little bit faster over the last week, fast enough so that it's changed that average by, by 16 seconds. And that's a big deal uh, when, when seconds count. Real quick, I want to take a minute to thank those of you listening on your favorite podcasting 2.0 app, such as Fountain. Fountain allows you to support your favorite podcast via the value for value model, where you can either stream sats on a per minute basis. For example, if you decide it's worth 10 sats per minute of your time to be listening to this podcast, you can set it up to where you stream us 10 sats per minute. If you think we're only worth one sat per minute, you can choose that as well. If you think we're worth 100 sats per minute. That's up to you. That's why they call it value for value. The other way you can help support your favorite podcast, this one included, is by sending a boost. And a boost is a message that's also a lightning transaction. So it's kind of a shout out. But since it's a lightning transaction, it comes with some Satoshis. And we have one of those to read this week. And that is for last week's episode, which was episode 150. Kind of a milestone for us. You know, people like nice round numbers. It's just part of human psychology. And that boost came from Leggy who boosted us 2,222 sats and said, forgot to boost last week. Thanks for your explanation of the mining regulation. The small amount of sats seems to be streamed. I thought it wouldn't work because Fountain always shows me zero sats when I activate it. What he's referring to is last week, I thought he had boosted us 100 sats because it showed that he had sent 100 sats, but there was no message. Apparently he was trying to do the value for value streaming method. Uh, and it just came in as, as one lump sum of 100 sats. Uh, and it's kind of hard to tell when I'm looking at the app. I, I, I can see the boosts, but if you don't leave a message, and sometimes you can, you can boost without a message, uh, you can leave it blank and just, send, and just send the sats if you just want to kind of smash tip your favorite podcast. And I thought that's what happened, but apparently he was streaming. We do have people that have been streaming the, the podcast sats on the permanent basis. I read shout outs. I read boosts because boosts are public record. If you boost the podcast, it's appended to the show notes. For example, in the Fountain app, if you're on an episode, it's got activity, show notes, and transcript. And under activity, for example, on episode 150, under activity, you'll see Leggy's Boost. So it's public. 
Uh, if you're streaming a sets, nobody but you and I know. And it's really cool. I actually really like it because if I have the my fountain app open, if I'm looking, uh, I can watch you streaming sats in real time. And that's really cool. I saw that last week. Sats coming in every minute. It was a bing, more sats. And that was neat because I'd like to know that you're listening. I like to know who you are and where you are because that's why I do this. I do this for the fellow plebs. And to see you listening, that's really cool. I don't know if it's more cool than a boost because a boost comes with a message and a message you get to explain how you're feeling or you can say hi or you can tell me what you like about the podcast or what you don't. So they're both really cool ways to support your favorite podcast. Uh, and since you don't necessarily dox yourself when you stream sets, we don't uh, we don't read. There's nothing to read. So we don't we don't do shout outs for people streaming. Uh, and that's pretty consistent with every podcast I listen to. In fact, none of the podcasts I listen to read out their stream sats. Several of them have specifically said that this is why they don't. That way you can support a podcast basically anonymously. So thank you to those of you who continue to support the podcast. Thank you, Leggy, for the boost. Uh, thank you last week for uh, for the sats you streamed. Since you're outing yourself as having stream sats, I feel comfortable in, in thanking you for, for doing so both. It was both really cool. It's cool to see sats come in and it's really cool to see your messages and I know you're out there and know what you think of the podcast. So thanks to all of you listening, whether you're listening on your favorite podcasting 2.0 app or not. Speaking of listeners, our geographic distribution distribution of listeners once again has remained exactly the same. It hasn't changed since January 10th. Currently, our top 10 countries for listenership remain number one, the United States. So thank you to those of you listening right here in the United States. As you know, I'm in Florida, so I'm listening from the United States when I listen to podcasts. Number two remains Argentina, so muchos gracias amigos in Argentina. It's really cool that our number two country is a place where, uh, well, there's a lot going on. I used to say it's a place where they need Bitcoin more than we need Bitcoin, but depending on what Javier Malay does down there, uh, that might rapidly become not the case. But either way, muchos gracias amigos. Thank you for your support from Argentina. Number three remains Germany, so Dankeschön, mein friends in Deutschland. Number four remains Luxembourg. Again, Dankeschön, mein Freund, in Luxembourg. Morian to everybody who speaks Luxembourgish. Number five remains Canada. So thank you to those of you in America's attic up there in the frozen white tundra. Don't worry, winter is almost over. We are here rapidly approaching the end of February. So uh, you might like the cold, but, you know, I've lived where it's cold. I've lived where it snows. And it seems like every summer you can't wait for the first snow. It snows. Everybody runs outside. When you're a kid, you try and catch the snowflakes on your tongue. Now, in the more modern age, everybody whips out their iPhones and takes pictures and selfies, etc. But it's really awesome. It also gets really old really fast, especially because if you're somewhere where there's lots of snow, it means you're probably somewhere north or really south, depending on what hemisphere you're in. And that means your days are shorter. There's a lot less daylight. People get um, what's called seasonal affective disorder because they're not exposed to as much sunlight. Your body's not making as much vitamin D, etc. So... Uh, I know that even if you're a winter winter, winter wonderland lover, it, it's probably getting pretty old by now. So thank you to those of you listening from up there where it's really cold, in parts of Canada at least. Number six remains Spain. So once again, muchos gracias amigos in Spain. Number seven remains Colombia. Again, muchos gracias amigos in Colombia, another country where Bitcoin is probably more useful and more valued than it is by the average normie here in the United States. Number eight remains Sweden. So... Taksamake to my friends in Sweden. Hopefully I didn't butcher that. I'm trying to learn the proper way to say thank you very much in Swedish. And since I had to look this up, I could be way off. Like, you know, I took German in high school and college, and 
some of the things they taught us for what were current greetings weren't necessarily what people would really say or how, or if you ask like, where's the bathroom, you know, it wasn't necessarily uh, what people would actually say. Um, people tend to use slang and they don't usually teach slang formally. So whether Taksamake is correct or not, only you can tell. So follow me on Twitter at BTC Bulletin Pod. Send me a DM and let me know if you're feeling really generous. Of course, you can send that information in a boost. Hopefully I did a better job of pronouncing that this week. Last week, I, I feel like I stumbled on it pretty bad. This week, I think I did a, a lot better job. But I don't know because I don't speak Swedish. But thank you to those of you in Sweden. Tak samake, as, as I hopefully am saying properly. Number nine remains the United Kingdom, our cousins across the pond. So thank you to those of you in the United Kingdom. And number 10 remains Venezuela. Muchos gracias, amigos in Venezuela. Again, flattering that those of you who are listening in a country where Bitcoin can mean more to your daily life than it means to a lot of people here in the United States. Dare I say most people in the United States, because the average person isn't even a Bitcoiner in this country, let alone have a deep understanding of it or use it for anything other than an investment at this point in time. All right, on to the news. Of course, the big news is the price. The price has just been parabolic in the last 48 hours. Not really parabolic, but it seems that way. I want to thank the Bitcoin protocol and those of you out there stacking sats for, for my insomnia. You know, I say zoom out, stop paying attention to the price, but I'm a news junkie. I'm an information junkie. I think a lot of you probably are. And that's why you're listening to podcasts, right? So when things are exciting, I'm paying attention. I live in Florida. If there's a hurricane brewing, I might find myself glued to all the weather information I can get. The weather channel will be playing in the background and I'll be looking at the National Hurricane Center forecast and the satellite images and the radar images, soaking up as much information I can. Of course, that can be a life or death situation for, uh, for us here in Florida. But again, I like, I like to make sure I'm, I have as much information about anything I'm interested in as I can. Bitcoin is the same way. So when we're in these epic runs, these 10% daily increases, I found myself getting almost no sleep the last few nights, especially since some of the biggest price gains were in the middle of the night here between like 2 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the morning. So you might have noticed that I was on Twitter at really, really weird hours. Uh, so thank you for the insomnia, Satoshi. Anyway, as I mentioned in the, in the introduction, is this time different? Well, every cycle, it seems like people are saying this time is different or this time will be different. But one thing is for sure, if we break the all-time high before the halving, that would be a concrete metric for saying this time was demonstrably different because that has never happened before. Of course, nobody has a crystal ball. I have no idea if that'll happen or not. We could get a pullback. We could go parabolic. Uh, there are people that have argued that we were going to hit a million dollars in the next month before the halving. Uh, plenty of people have said we're going to hit 100,000 or at least just set a new all-time high before the halving. But that would be different. All of the cycles have rhymed a little bit. You know, we had a double top last cycle, which was a little weird, but not totally unprecedented. Uh, they say that history doesn't repeat it rhymes, and those cycles have rhymed, but they've, of course, not been carbon copies of each other. Uh, but I think breaking the all-time before I had before the halving would be so different, so different than anything we've ever seen before that, that I think we could definitely say at least that aspect of it would be a this-time-is-different moment. I want to reiterate while we're talking about the price. Remember last week I had read out, I read to you the tweets from multiple people on X Twitter that were calling for a huge pullback to sub 48, 45 K and mentioned that this is why we DCA that traders get wrecked. Uh, remember mastermind USA at mastermind USA on Twitter had tweeted 48 K by end of day and Tao De Jing two at T A O D E J I N G two on Twitter had tweeted 
scared yet? Told you 48K was coming. And uh, and then followed that up with, uh, or I guess that was a follow-up to a previous tweet where he said, we've tried countless times to break tw- to break 52 and failed. This is usually an indicator that a huge reversal to 45K Bitcoin or lower is coming. Plan accordingly. Well, update in Tao's defense or to Tao's credit, uh, they tweeted out this afternoon a, a correction. Maybe not necessarily an apology, but they tweeted, I'm sincerely happy for everyone. Unfortunately for me, I've been completely priced out from ever becoming a Bitcoin whole coiner. Yeah, this is why they say traders get wrecked. It's why we've continuously said DCA. Time in the market speeds timing the market every time it's tried. Anybody who's been in Bitcoin for any length of time will tell you that Bitcoin makes its biggest moves just five or six days out of the year. Maybe 10 days a year, I think is what... Um, I'm spacing on the guy's name, but uh, he was out there calling for a hundred thousand Bitcoin at the end of 2020. And obviously he was wrong, but, but he was backing it up with data showing that Bitcoin can do it because it, it makes all these moves to just 10 days a year. So it's, you know, just because the price is only 20,000 or 10,000 doesn't mean it can't 10 X overnight. You know, we saw 20% just in the last two days in the form of two 10% plus days. Uh, and you don't know when those are going to come. I had a conversation with a family member literally the morning before the price explosion saying that, hey, I noticed the Bitcoin goes up to 52 and drops down to 50. And if I sell at 52 and buy back at 50, I'll, I can stack more Bitcoin without actually having any money. And I said, don't forget, in the United States, you'd have to make a bigger gain than you thought because you're going to give 40% of that up in terms of short-term capital gains if you're day trading. So, you know, if you make thousand dollars and you have to give up four hundred dollars of it in taxes all of a sudden it's not as big of a profit as you might think and the risk is bitcoin goes through the roof before you have a chance to buy back and you end up getting less bitcoin and and i had that conversation and less than 24 hours late bitcoin proved me right i had the follow-up conversation yesterday and uh, he was like wow yeah you're right uh, that would have been that would have been brutal and apparently that's the sort of thing that happened to tau Trying to trade, predicting 45,000 Bitcoin was going to sell at 52, make all that money when it got back at, you know, buy buy more sats when it hit 52. And now, uh, um, presumably, they, you know, presumably they've been trading their whole stack. I have no idea. But if they were trading just a little on the side, that certainly wouldn't preclude them from ever becoming a whole coiner, depending on how much Bitcoin they have. If they traded their whole stack, especially if it was multiple Bitcoin and now they're screwed, wow, that would that would really put a, a punctuation mark on that on that lesson. So... Folks, this is why we DCA, plebs. Time in the market speeds timing the markets every time it's tried. You know, we, we've been doing this experiment for two and a half years, and uh, it's about time we go over that again and, and explain just how much better off we did than DCAing. If I remember, I'll do that at the end. But I've done that in previous episodes, and you can do the math yourself. You know what the price of Bitcoin was the day we started this podcast? I think it was 39000 And you know what our average cost basis is, so... Uh, just doing the math, you can see we, we have a, a, a lot more Satoshis than we would have if we had aped in. And even more so because, you know, the longer we've been DCAing, the more money we've converted into Satoshis, the, the you know, we, let's say we, we've spent, we've converted more than $2,000 into Sats right now. And for someone who's stacking $20 a week, uh, you know, we're doing that because a lot of people don't have $2,000. So you can't say, oh, if I'd invested $2,000 at X date, I'd be doing better off. But we didn't. We didn't have it. Maybe you had 500, maybe you had 1,000, maybe you've got 2,000. But if you have $2,000 to ape in, then of course your DCAs would be higher. So the point being, over time, we've been able to convert more USD into Satoshis 
then we would be able to lump sum at any given time anyway. And we've gotten at a better average price as a result. So, you know, results may differ. This is just an experiment we've been doing. We've been doing it publicly so you can follow along, draw your own conclusions. To me, the results seem obvious. Speaking again of the price of Bitcoin uh, and all, new all-time highs, I say Bitcoin might uh, pass the all-time high before the halving, but that's here in the United States. If you live in one of 30 plus countries now, Bitcoin's already set a new all-time high in your local currency. Balaji tweeted just a couple hours ago, Bitcoin has passed all-time highs in 30 plus countries, including China, India, and of course they post a, a, a graphic that cycles through all 30 countries. Uh, the screenshot I have is frozen on Turkey, so China, Turkey, and India. On February 26th, two days ago, Eric Dale, at Eurodale on Twitter, tweeted, New all-time high for Bitcoin in Norway. Market summary, Bitcoin is worth 559,453 Norwegian kroner. Krona? Forgive me if I got that wrong. Um, and then yesterday, Eric Dale followed that tweet up with, Israel down, who's next? Tweeting, one Bitcoin is worth 204,826 new Israeli new shekels, INS, ILS, Israeli new shekels. Uh, so apparently that's a new all-time high. And, you know, here in the United States where half of my listeners are, we tend to be really American-centric, really U.S.-centric. And we, we're looking at the new all-time high. But for a large chunk of the world, that all-time high has already happened. So... Uh, maybe that's different depending on what country you're in. Maybe it's not depending on the state of your currency, but it certainly is exciting. Luke Broyles tweeted this morning at Luke underscore Broyles on Twitter. In the last 90 minutes, Bitcoin hit all-time all highs in three more countries, Canada, Australia, and Vietnam. So to those of you listening in America's attic, uh, Bitcoin's already at new all-time highs. So when you're listening to me, and we already read off that uh, Canada's in our top 10 countries, for listenership, when I'm saying Bitcoin's closing in a new all-time high, you might be looking at me uh, over your over your hockey sticks and your maple syrup. Just kidding. We know it's not maple syrup in that mug. It's uh, it's coffee, right? Uh, and anyway, Bitcoin's already a new all-time high. I have had way too much sleep to try and be humorous this podcast, so please forgive me. I'll try not to do that because uh, I'm already spacing on the coffee shop. I was going to say over your mug of uh, coffee from the coffee shop, the famous coffee shop chain in Canada that puts nicotine in your coffee. Uh, I I guess I shouldn't go on tangents. Stick to the script, Chris. Stick to the script. All right. Naturally, anytime the price of Bitcoin is pumping or plummeting even, Coinbase crashes. And we wouldn't be officially in a bull run unless Coinbase went down. And like clockwork, this morning, Brian Armstrong tweets out, we are dealing with a large surge of traffic. Apologies for any issues you encounter the team is working to remediate. Apparently, a whole lot of you logged into your Coinbase account and saw zero balances. I know in the past, when I was a Coinbase customer, I got burned by this, wanting to place trades, you know, and the, the price is plummeting and you want to make a trade and Coinbase is down. Of course, the price recovered before I was able to make the trade. Same thing happens when people want to sell. Of course, I don't recommend selling, but if you do take profits, you want to do so at the peak, right? And if Coinbase crashes and all of a sudden you missed 65 or whatever, and it's back down to 60, 61,000, uh, that would really suck. So uh, it's also kind of, I, I, I'm, I'm torn whether I'm going to say humorous or if it's one of those fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on me, or fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me incidents. Because uh, if you've been around any, any length of time, you should know better and you should have a backup 
to Coinbase because Coinbase is going to crash. This, however, has led to a lot of speculation that this is this even on purpose? Why does Coinbase keep going down? And I don't necessarily have any reason to believe it's on purpose, other than the fact that it's on purpose in terms of negligence, because what this tells me is they're not willing to invest the dollars that it would take to, to make their systems robust enough to be able to handle the, the peaks. As I said earlier, Bitcoin does this maybe only 10 days a year, right? And so they're willing to crash those 10 days a year because their system's good enough for everything else and uh, they would cost them money and they're not losing any money because, because you got screwed and had to buy lower or uh, buy higher or sell lower. Uh, so I don't know if it's an economic decision they made. Others are speculating maybe this is market manipulation because the price of Bitcoin corrected heavily uh, as soon as it was news that as soon as everybody knew that it was that Coinbase was down, Bitcoin dropped like four or five thousand dollars. It basically cut the day's gains in half. So I could see how it could possibly be market manipulation so they could fill their orders or even if it's not market manipulation, just, you know, kind of like a circuit breaker, like the traditional stock markets have that allows them to, to cool off, to, to regroup, to get their head together, to figure out what they're going to do or to buy enough Satoshi's to sell to you when people are FOMOing in. I have no idea. I'm not accusing Coinbase of doing this on purpose. My humble belief is that they're, it's just like, you know, they, they haven't implemented lightning withdrawals and they, they were one of the last people to batch. They were the last people to implement SegWit addresses. Um, you know, they don't care about Bitcoiners. I think that's, that's patently obvious. They care more about their S coins. Uh, so for you plebs trying to stack on Bitcoin, you're an afterthought to Brian Armstrong. All right. Part of what's driving the surge in Bitcoin price has got to be the Bitcoin that's being soaked up by the ETFs. This is a no-brainer. It's what we all thought would happen, so it makes sense that it is what happened. I don't have the data for today's inflows yet because that sometimes lags a little bit, but I do know the data from yesterday. BitMEX Research, at BitMEX Research on Twitter, does a pretty good job of updating us, at least by the end of day, or usually by the, before midnight anyway of what the daily totals were. And yesterday, for example, BitMEX Research tweeted 10,167.5 net Bitcoin net inflow on February 27th. And that is amazing. That is like the fourth highest inflows that the ETFs had ever seen. The day before, of course, there was a net inflow of 9,500 Bitcoin. Before that was only 4,000. I think the peak was on launch day when they had a net inflow of 14,000. Uh, in total, they've had a net inflow of 133,896.2 Bitcoin, more than halfway to owning 1% of the total Bitcoin supply. That is just insane. They're rapidly catching up to MicroStrategy and Michael Saylor. And that net inflow of 10,167 Bitcoin is particularly impressive when you consider that Grayscale is still hemorrhaging. That, isn't, that is taking into account the 2,214.6 Bitcoin that were cashed out of Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. So uh, that is pretty amazing. Of that 10,167 net Bitcoin inflow, 9,169 and a half of that was just into BlackRock. Fidelity saw inflows of 2,221.6 Bitcoin and the other ETFs all saw in the hundreds or less. Uh, of course, with the exception of Grayscale who saw a reduction in their Bitcoin holdings. Today is looking a little bit more subdued. I don't have the Bitcoin numbers in front of me, but BitMEX Research tweeted, Bitcoin ETF flow February 28th, GBDC outflow 216 million. So the outflows from GBTC have slowed today. Yesterday was 2,214 Bitcoin. Um, 
I'm actually, that's bad info because I'm telling you Bitcoin versus versus millions. But uh, we are. What we do know is that's up from yesterday, where where GBTC's outflow was 125.6 million. So more people are dumping GBTC, and it remains to be seen how much more Bitcoin, uh, BlackRock, and Fidelity and the other ETFs have soaked up. One thing that is glaringly obvious if you've got eyes is that um, yesterday's inflow of 10 point or 10,167.5 Bitcoin is 11, more than 11. It's 11.296 times to be exact, more than 11 times the daily supply of newly minted Bitcoin. This is important because the vast majority of Bitcoin that's for sale is freshly mined Bitcoin from large scale miners that have to sell some of this Bitcoin to cover their expenses. Their, you know, their mortgage or their lent or their lease, the electricity to run those miners, the payroll to pay the text, to keep those miners going, you know, just in general to, to service their debt, whatever their general business expenses are. Uh, but, you know, the only other way for Bitcoin to, to enter the market is to coax it out of the hands of the hodlers. And, and we're not doing a lot of we're not doing a lot of profit taking. And uh, hopefully you aren't, aren't even considering that because Bitcoin is just getting started. If Bitcoin does. Anything close to what it's done the previous two cycles, uh, we are going, I want to, I'm not a moon boy, but I want to say we're going to the moon this cycle. I would not be surprised to see half a million dollar Bitcoin. Of course, I don't have a crystal ball. You know, nobody knows what's going to happen. Anybody out there showing you a chart with lines and circles on it, telling what the price of Bitcoin is going to be is either grossly mislead, misleading, grossly, uh, grossly confused, overly confident in their abilities, or, uh, or they're a scammer. Anyway, the point being, uh, the, the ETFs soaked up 11 times more Bitcoin than was mined yesterday, and that's going to get cut in half in less than two months. So that would be 22 and a half times more Bitcoin than is being dumped on, than potentially could even be dumped on markets by the miners. So you do the math there, and you know if you know even the even even in the crappiest schools, in the in the in the most fiat, the most Keynesian economic schools, they've, they've got to at least teach the basics of supply and demand, right? Maybe they don't. I don't know. It's been a long time since I took an econ 101 class, a macroeconomics class or whatever. Um, but it doesn't seem like a no-brainer that if there's more people buying Bitcoin than there is Bitcoin available, that is what's causing the price to go up. And it's only going to get even more insane uh, when that supply gets cut in half. The other big news that people have been glued to all week, at least until they got distracted by Bitcoin's price action, was the ongoing CSW trial, the fake Toshi trial, the COPA trial in England, where COPA is basically suing Craig Wright, uh, trying to block his, to block him from claiming he's Satoshi, and uh, and and you know harassing, harassing developers, uh, harassing plebs like Hodlanot, for example. And I believe today was scheduled to be the last day of testimony before closing arguments. I think that today was supposed to be the last day, pretty much a non-eventful day. And then there was going to be a, a break of a week or so. Then both sides get to make their closing arguments. And then finally, this clown show will be over. But boy, were there fireworks on Monday when Hodlanot, for example, tweeted, on Monday afternoon, Wright's lawyers revealed further documents suggesting another potential fraud attempt by Wright. Yes, you heard that correctly. Wright's lawyers revealed further documents suggesting forgeries. Uh, basically what happened was, and there's a headline in Forbes saying, Craig Wright's own legal team exposes more potential forgeries. Basically, uh, you know, attorneys can be pretty weaselly. In Florida, we have a lot of ambulance chasers. I think this is one of the worst states as far as, as far as a reputation for skeezy, sleazy lawyers is concerned. Uh, but even so, even here in Florida, if 
an attorney, if your attorney has exculpatory evidence, if he has evidence that shows he knows you're guilty, uh, they can't ignore it. By law, they have to disclose it. Same thing, apparently, in England. What they had where they had emails that purportedly were from Craig Wright's former legal team saying that they had been a, uh, made aware of a piece of evidence in 2019. Of course, that wasn't the case. He had forged those emails as well, or somebody had forged those emails as well. It looks like the wife is going to probably take the blame for this one because I believe she's the one that forwarded the emails. Either way, um, the emails were were forwarded to his new legal team from his old legal team, basically, as evidence saying, oh, we knew about him being, we knew about this evidence in 2019, and that would prove Satoshi. Uh, and those emails were, of course, the dates were changed, like so many other pieces of evidence that are presented in this trial so far. Uh, and I guess that legal team notified his new legal team saying, hey, these emails are forged and we want you to disclose that in court. And they had a legal duty to do so. And they did. And, you know, if they hadn't, if they had knowingly uh, presented those forged emails as real, knowing that they were forged and not disclosed that and got caught with their pants down when the other law firm said, hey, these are forgeries. We told them this forgeries, uh, you know. They get, they get disbarred. They can get charged criminally. I don't know what the law is in, in England, but it would be a big, big deal. And it would certainly be a big smear on their reputation. And CSW is not their only client. He's not going to be their client for much longer. And, you know, they have their reputation to worry about. So they didn't have a choice. But either way, it was certainly damning, especially damning since it came from his own legal team. The other really cool thing, depending on your point of view that happened, is we got a huge tranche of previously unknown Satoshi emails. First, we had Adam Back release a huge batch of previously undisclosed emails from Satoshi Nakamoto. Then we had developer Marty Sirius Malmi release another batch of emails. And amongst this newly discovered batch of emails, we learned, th we learned things like, for example, why Satoshi chose 21 million. I've seen a lot of speculation on Bitcoin Twitter, on Reddit, online in general about that 21 million number. People coming up with different methods of numerology, dividing, adding, subtracting to show why 21 million was a significant number. And basically what we learned was um, Satoshi said, I don't have this email directly in front of me, but I'm paraphrasing on this one. So what he said is, uh, depending on how big Bitcoin got, he didn't want a number to where the, if there were so many Bitcoin, Bitcoin would basically be worthless because it wasn't very widely adopted and there were too many. So it impairs its value. And he didn't want so few Bitcoin that it would be unusable. So he went with the middle range and 21 million was that middle that he chose. And, and that's why he picked 21 million. So uh these emails are out there online if, you, if, you're, if you're more interested in diving into them because there's a lot of them. I'm only going to highlight two or three of them. But that answers a question that was pertinent until just this week. Nobody knew, and now we know. Another email addresses this whole environmental FUD. This was even something Satoshi addressed you know, in 2010, so 14 years ago, well before it was even a concern. And I'm going to read directly from the email now. Ironic if we end up having to choose between economic liberty and conservation. Unfortunately, proof of work is the only solution I've found to make P2P eCash work without a trusted third party. Even if I wasn't using it secondarily as a way to allocate the initial distribution of currency, POW is fundamental to coordinating the network and preventing double spending. If it did grow to consume significant energy, I think it would still be less wasteful than the labor and resource intensive conventional banking activity it would replace. The cost would be an order of magnitude less than the billions in banking fees that pay for all those brick-and-mortar buildings, skyscrapers, and junk mail credit card offers. Satoshi. So that is an argument that people have tried to make, but of course, 
Uh, it's not as persuasive of an argument per se as when people say, um, well, we're using green energy or we're using stranded energy or we're, we're helping stabilize the grid. Uh, this goes to directly to the fact that Bitcoin is coming after the traditional financial market. Bitcoin is coming after banks. Bitcoin is coming after Wall Street. And yeah, it uses a lot of electricity, but nowhere near as much as them. So if anybody needs to go away, it should be TradFi, basically. Another interesting email, and this one is potentially dangerous because this might give us clues as to Satoshi's identity. And most people agree that Satoshi going away and being anonymous is very significant for Bitcoin to prevent it having a cult of personality per se, or you know the ability of someone out there coming and making sweeping changes or dumping Satoshi's coins on the market or what have you. There's lots of reasons why people want why people like the fact that Satoshi is unknown, that he's a mystery character, and that they would like to keep it that way. So this concerns a mysterious donor, somebody that gave money, that donated money to the cause to help pay for things like uh, running their Bitcoin.org uh, website, etc. I'm going to read directly from the email to Malmi in June 2010 from Satoshi that said, by the way, it's looking like I may be able to get us some money soon to cover web hosting costs, back your exchange service, etc. in the form of cash in the mail. Can you receive it and act as the project's treasurer? That would be nice. I can do it. Sending cash, that would be nice. I can, I can do it. Sending cash in the mail may have its risks, but maybe it's still the best anonymous option. We can also ask for donations in BTC on the forums. Uh, and then the, I guess that's a forward. And then below it says, I got a donate, or this is, that's the new part. And then it references, I got a donation offer of 2000 USD. I need to get your postal mailing address to have him send to. And yes, he wants to remain anonymous. So please keep the envelopes origin private. All right. So basically we have uh, the potential existence that someone that Malmi knows where an envelope of cash was mailed to. And while it, that Satoshi says it's not coming from him, of course, that could be an obfuscation. This is, this is a clue. It's, it's not necessarily a smoking gun. But it's just one piece of evidence, and uh, hopefully Malmi destroyed the evidence or uh, doesn't remember because, you know, the person that donated the money, even if it's not Satoshi, wanted to remain anonymous, and uh, it's just a piece of the puzzle that we don't need to know, right? Uh, but it's another interesting development that came out of the CSW trial. So despite the fact it's a clown show, despite the fact we all want to see him go away, go down in flames, no less, uh, that's an interesting development that we wouldn't have known had had this trial not been going on. Previously, all of Satoshi's known emails were compiled into a, uh, and compiled into a work known as the Book of Satoshi, and that was a, uh, a collection of a collection of, of Bitcoin's uh, the Book of Satoshi, the collected writings of Bitcoin creator Satoshi Nakamoto. It's available on Amazon. It's by Phil Champagna or Champagne. I don't know how he pronounces it, uh, but that's clearly going to need to be updated because there's more than a hundred more emails to add. One of the last bits of news that this kind of gets into price, but it's delayed news, was it became known this week that Reddit has invested its cash reserves, or at least a portion of them, into Bitcoin and Ether, and apparently into Matic or Polygon as well. Although the Polygon, I believe, was purchased because they wanted to use it as an on-chain token for transactions, not as a treasury asset. Apparently the Bitcoin and the Ether are as a reserve treasury asset for Reddit. Now that's exciting news that another company out there is doing that. It's not new that... They didn't just make this purchase. The reason we know about it is because Reddit is getting ready to file their IPO. They want to go to pub they want to go public and be traded on a stock exchange as soon as next month. And so they need to do these financial disclosures. And as a result, we found out 
that uh, they're hodlers, that, they're, that they've joined uh, other companies such as MicroStrategy and, and stacking Bitcoin. So uh, that is cool. If it were new, it would probably would have had a bigger impact on price than, than if it were old. The last thing I want to talk about, and this is kind of on a fun note, there's been a lot of speculation on Bitcoin X Twitter, X or whatever you're calling it now, about, and I, I even mentioned this on Twitter the other day saying, you know, uh, we're getting to the fun part of the having cycle now. Shouldn't we have all these memes? Shouldn't we have all these songs? We had so many great Bitcoin original songs or memes put together where Bitcoin imagery was set to existing songs. And we haven't seen a whole lot of that. And people out there have actually been trying to push the song higher by Creed. It's a good song, but uh, I don't, you know, it's, it, it's kind of a 90s, almost grunge, arena grunge, arena rock song the 90s version of it. And I can understand why it's a nostalgic song to millennials because it came out in 1999, which is the, like that's ground zero for when millennials were coming of age. If you take the stereotypical millennial, what a millennial is supposed to be. So I understand it's a song that, that they might think fondly of, but uh, to me, it's just missing something. You know, it doesn't have a certain je ne sais quoi that, 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 that an anthem for something should have. Uh, it's not that it's an old song. It can be an old song. It doesn't matter. I think, uh, I, I think you, you can't force this. This is something, this is the sort of thing that's just going to happen. Someone's going to put together a meme. It's going to go viral. People are going to love it. And it's going to become kind of like that uh, pump it up did last cycle or the Bitcoin, please go to a moon that kind of became the anthem of the, of the last bear market, the last crypto winner. Uh, either way, it's not something you can force. This is something that's going to happen organically if it happens at all. And the whole thing, I mean, people are really trying to push this. There's a lot of posts on Twitter where people arguing this forcefully and people disagreeing as well. But um, it reminds me of a couple things. It reminds me of when people tried to force bits instead of sats. And, you know, I think that's already been decided. And sats became a thing organically and trying to force bits just because you, this is more convenient or it'd be more understandable to people to use the metric system. Uh, you know, that might be logic, but it's just when something becomes a cultural norm. It's something that has to happen organically. It's not something that can be forced. And trying to force it reminds me of that movie, not another teen movie, the parody of all the 1980s teen movies. And in the movie, if you haven't seen it, there's a character who repeatedly trying to start a slow clap awkwardly, just trying to start a, and it just doesn't work. And people give him crap for it. The very end of the movie, something happens and someone else starts a slow clap and he finally misses his chance. And that's what this reminds me of. You can't force the slow clap. You can't force an anthem for an epic on people. It has to happen organically. And by trying to pick something and force it, you're kind of, you, you might be missing your chance. I mean, maybe you just create something, put it out there and let it happen organically. It's kind of like, maybe it could have been higher by Creed, but by the, the fact you're trying to force it on people is putting people off of the, of the whole concept. Whereas if you just done a really epic video, it would have just taken off on its own. So we don't have an epic. We don't have an epic anthem for this this bull bull market yet. But technically, we're still in the previous cycle. We haven't gotten to the having. And even though we might set a new all time high, the price is soaring. We're still in the 2020 having cycle until the new having happens. So we have time. I'm sure it's going to happen. If it doesn't, it would be a shame because that would mean Bitcoin's gotten a lot less fun than it used to be. All right, I have already hanyaked for almost an hour, and so we need to get to the reason why I'm here. And the reason we're here is because it is Wednesday, and every Wednesday is DCA Wednesday. And again, if you're just joining us or you don't know what DCA is, DCA is short for dollar cost averaging. And dollar cost averaging is an investment strategy where you invest your money in equal portions at regular intervals regardless of price. For example, this is going to be our 136th stack. 
I've already mentioned earlier in this podcast that we've been stacking $20 as our equal portion. I chose $20 because I wanted to choose an amount that anybody listening to reasonably should be able to come with, come up with and an interval that they could come up with it in weekly. And as well as the fact that weekly tends to be a pretty standard interval for DCAing anything, whether you're buying stocks, bonds, gold coins, or Bitcoin, the average person does their investing when they get their paycheck, which makes sense. You got to have money to do your investing, right? If you're investing from your investments, then you're just moving money around. You're trading. You're not DCAing. So people get paid in general in the United States weekly or biweekly. And so if you get paid every Friday, maybe that could be your DCA day. If you get paid every other Friday, then it's okay to DCA every other Friday. The point is that you, that you invest a equal portion and you do so at regular intervals, regardless of price, that you're not trying to time the markets. So over those 136 stacks, we've invested $20 every Wednesday of those 136 Wednesdays, and we converted $2,700 US dollars, including $60.75 in fees, and more recently spread, because Cash App started adding a spread, into 8980147 sats at an average price of $30,066.32. That is not too shabby considering the current price of Bitcoin. Hopefully this will be the stack that puts us over, well, this will be the stack that puts us over 9 million because unless the price explodes, we're going to get more than 19,900 sats uh, for this purchase. So as usual, I'm going to make this purchase using Cash App. Again, Cash App is not a sponsor of the show. This is a you-do-you thing, just like the amount you invest and the, and the frequency that you invest in. These are These are... These are where you do your own research and you pick an interval and an amount that you're comfortable with and you pick a, a method, an app, or an exchange that you're comfortable with. But we're going to use Cash App. If you want to use Cash App, if it's available where you are, there is a referral code in the show notes. And if you use that referral code to sign up, I believe the current offer is you'll get $5 free for doing so and the podcast will get 5 bucks free as well. So that's another great way to help support the podcast. You'll get paid to do so. Uh, but I digress. I've got Cash App open. I already have more than 20 bucks on Cash App. So it's just a matter of hitting Bitcoin, hitting buy, entering $20, tapping confirm. And boom, just like that, we purchased another 31,957 sats, almost 6,000 sats fewer than the last two DCA Wednesdays. And 12,000 sats fewer than the Wednesday before that. That is the occupational hazard of getting in later. When I say later, I say later because you're not late. We're still early. I still firmly believe that, but that window is closing. And even if we're still in the earlier phases of adoption, your ability to stack large enough stacks of sats that you're not worried about dust, that it will actually be usable one day, is narrowing as you get fewer and fewer of those for your fiat. They say gradually, then suddenly, right? Uh, and maybe we'll repeat last cycle and it will go up to some really cool number like a half a million and then drop back down to somewhere near where we are now. Uh, and, and you'll be able to stack sats for another four years, but maybe we won't. Maybe this will be the cycle where we go hyper-Bitcoinization or where we go into the quote-unquote super cycle. We are already looking at potentially setting a new all-time high before the halving. Nobody knows what's going to happen. So all we know is that we sh we are stacking as many sats as we can while we still have the opportunity. And doing so has officially bumped our stack to over 9 million sats. We now have 9,012,104 sats. It did raise our average cost basis by $115.31. That is dramatically more than we've seen it go up 
That's the first time in, in scrolling through my notes it's gone up by more than $100. Last week we raised it by $96.50. So our average purchase price is now $30,181.63. And uh, Bitcoin went down a bit while I was talking. So we purchased at $61,175. That's still almost double our dollar cost average, uh, our, our average, sorry, our average cost basis. That is really cool. And if Bitcoin does go to the moon, heck, if Bitcoin doesn't even 2x, if it just, if it just goes to 100,000, that's not even 2x uh, this cycle, that stash would be worth $9,012.10. That is more than 3x what we've invested. If Bitcoin goes to the moon, if that moon is $1 million, that stash would be worth $90,121.04. If Bitcoin goes to $10 million, we're talking almost a million dollars for the Bitcoin just with the stack we have right now, a stack that we're going to continue to grow next Wednesday and every Wednesday on our DCA Wednesday episodes. But the point being, that is not too shabby for now we've converted just $2,720. And we've done it to just $20 a week, something I think almost everybody listening to this podcast should be able to do. And of course, if you have greater means than that, hopefully you're, you're stacking more. But again, those are you do you, uh, you do you decisions. One thing I promised I'd talk about was that um, if we had YOLO'd in, our average purchase price would be $39,716. I didn't crunch the numbers, but we would have more than 2 million fewer sats, almost 3 million fewer sats uh, for the, the $2,720 that we would have converted. Uh, so, you know, maybe this, you could argue this isn't a scientific experiment, but we got two and a half years of data now, which is a pretty, pretty decent trial run for most, for most, uh, for most studies. And again, I'm mainly doing this. I'm mainly doing this for fun and for information purposes. Uh, it's also nice that we're providing data out there that you can evaluate to determine whether you think dollar cost averaging is is best for you. Before I wrap it up, once again, I want to ask you to help this podcast out, and I want to ask you to help you do so for free. This is not asking for for sats or for money. Of course, if you want to help support the podcast by streaming or boosting, that is that that would be awesome. I, I do really appreciate it. It, it is really helpful. Um, but you can also help the podcast out simply by following us on Twitter. On Twitter, we are at BTC Bulletin Pod. I do like to hear from you. You don't have to boost us. You can send me a DM at, at BTC Bulletin Pod on Twitter and let me know what you think about this episode. But by subscribing to us, I'm sorry, following us, you don't need subscribe. We don't do subscription feeds like some Twitter influencers, Bitcoin influencers. I'm just asking for a follow. By following us, you'll help feed that algorithm monster. More people will start seeing our tweets. Maybe more people will be uh, orange pilled by by following us along as we DCA. Uh, the other way you can help support the podcast is depending on which podcast app you're listening to, you can on Apple Podcasts, make sure you have automatic downloads enabled and you can rate or review the podcast. If you give us a five-star review, that would be fantastic. But any review is data that feeds that algorithm monster will help more people see this podcast pop up in their feed. Hopefully help us orange pill more people. Hopefully let us help more people know that you don't have to have $61,000 to start investing in Bitcoin. All you need is as little as $20 in our case, or even as little as a dollar. And you can buy some sets. And those are things you can help us do simply by, again, following us on Twitter, rating or reviewing the podcast, uh, et cetera. Either way, though, again, as I've already mentioned once in this podcast, don't forget to join us next Wednesday and every Wednesday while we grow that stack together. We're going to try and get to that 10 million sat mark before Bitcoin gets so expensive in fiat terms that we're just getting fewer and fewer sats and can and eventually, you know, we can, we just never will get, we'll never be able to get to, 
whatever that goal will be. Hopefully we'll get to 10 million sats before then. That's been my unofficial goal now for a while. Of course, that's a sliding goal. Once we hit 10 million, of course, I'll have a new goal. Uh, $20 a coin, I have no idea how long or if it would ever be possible to become a whole coiner at that rate. But if you're stacking more than we are, maybe you're already a whole coiner and that would be really cool. But even if you are not, that stack of 9 million sats we have is probably 10x more than the average person will ever be able to purchase. So it's not too late, plebs. And along those lines, keep on stacking those sats, you sexy sat stackers.